This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Following the money behind the ongoing convoy protests and blockades. And he helped build a dialysis center after being a patient himself. Now the province is honoring Salah Bashir. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Long-term care must be reimagined and recreated with an innovative, emotion-based model of care with smaller home-like environments and well-trained and supported staff who empowered to take care of the residents with compassion and that all-important human touch. That's CARP's Chief Operating and Policy Officer Bill Van Gorder from this week's annual general meeting outlining the advocacy group's priority for the year under the umbrella Less Promises, More Action. CARP is also pushing for better home and community care, access to innovative care, fitness, and protection of financial security. CARP expects its membership to reach 350000 by the end of the year. Ontario grew at a faster pace overall than the rest of the country over the last five years, mainly due to immigration. And the growth wasn't in large urban areas. The first release of new data from the 2021 census finds a number of First Nations communities had the largest population bumps, and Collingwood and Wasega Beach were among the fastest-growing areas in the country. Wasega Beach grew by 20%, second only to Squamish, B.C. The Maritimes grew faster than the prairies for the first time since the 1940s. A Centers for Disease Control report ranked U.S. states in order of residents' life expectancies in the year before the pandemic took hold. Results show that Mississippi had the country's lowest life expectancy at 74.4 years, while Hawaii had the highest at 80.9 years. The popular online game Wordle is being credited for saving a Chicago grandmother from a 17-hour hostage ordeal. The victim's daughter grew concerned when her 80-year-old mother hadn't sent her daily Wordle score. Denise Holt was alone when an intruder locked her in a basement bathroom after collecting her mobile phone to prevent her from calling for help. Police were called to do a wellness check and found her physically unharmed. A suspect was arrested who was apparently in a mental health crisis. Taipei, Taiwan, when you hear Beethoven, it's time to take out the trash. The classical Fureilis is a call to action for residents to bring out the nightly garbage and catch up on neighborhood gossip. 
The yellow truck, with a smaller white recycling one behind it, travels down the narrow streets each night. Residents say the ritual resembles a block party as old and young converge on the trash truck from every direction. The system has also fostered a sense of community in many neighborhoods. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The blockading protests calling themselves the Freedom Convoy have raised millions of dollars in a very short period of time. When GoFundMe froze their funds, sites like GiveSendGo took over. Reports suggest much of the cash is coming from the U.S. and much has been donated anonymously. Who's behind the money? Christian Luprecht is a professor of political science at the Royal Military College and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. The convoy raised $10 million on crowdfunding in a very short period of time just to start. That's basically unheard of in Canada. Yeah, and I think that in it, in and of itself should raise red flags, right? So, I mean, if you if you think about the Red Cross appeal for disasters like an earthquake in Haiti or whatever, you know, we don't raise those that, those amounts of money over multiple weeks. Um, there are charitable organizations in this country with professional fundraising arms that don't raise that much money over the course of a year. So, when we raise that much money in that short a period of time, I think uh, we need to ask some questions about what the source of that money is and. And of course, we also have anecdotal evidence that uh, there are folks in downtown Ottawa walking around with large amounts of uh, cash and using those wads of cash to pay for meals, to pay for gas, to pay for hotel rooms. You know, you and I, like when, I don't know, when I travel, I don't pull out a big wad of cash to pay for my hotel room. I put it on my credit card. So that suggests that there's also intent by some of the organizers deliberately to obfuscate and obscure the sources of funding for this protest. Where is the money coming from? So that's difficult to ascertain on open source, but we can certainly see sympathies both from uh, political elements as well as from uh, some media elements in the United States. We also have potentially bad state actors who are involved here. As you know, we have a significant dispute in Europe with a major geopolitical uh, power in Europe over a certain country in Europe. And uh, that is to say that this actor would uh, ostensibly have a geostrategic interest in supporting a protest that is clearly polarizing the country and where some elements within that protest are intent on delegitimizing our democratic institutions. And we know that they have the money to do so. We know that Russia has parked about a trillion dollars offshore in the West. And we know that $200 billion of those are at the direct disposal of Vladimir Putin. And we know that he has weaponized those monies before to advance his particular geopolitical interests. So you can readily see how the Russians might say, oh, let's put a couple million dollars into the protest um, because this can only work out in our favor. Do you have any evidence that Russia is doing this? As I say, we don't have any open source evidence on this. You can, you know, the organization that knows is FinTrack, our financial intelligence agency. That's what we pay FinTrack to do. Um, but unfortunately, in this country, we had the ingenious idea, unlike almost all other democratic partners, not to give FinTrack enforcement powers. So basically, FinTrack can watch the money, but they can't do anything about it. And we know that the RCMP has proven itself um, completely inept at actually investigating and prosecuting people for 
for much of the financial crime, the global financial crime that is transpiring in this country. GoFundMe suspended the money. They distributed a million out of 10 and, and are not distributing the rest. Well, we also know that there's a, a nominally Christian charity that raised two and a half million dollars that has, as far as I know, not done likewise. Um, I mean, it took quite some time for GoFundMe to actually take that step. My guess is GoFundMe probably took that step because they got a phone call from one of the agencies uh, that it might be helpful if they curtailed um, the flow of money. In the States, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said he's going to investigate GoFundMe for not distributing the cash, as are some uh, politicians in Texas. Well, uh, it's up to their jurisdictions to decide whether GoFundMe acted uh, within the law, uh, both in the way that monies were raised and whether they should have, they had an obligation to report that to financial intelligence uh, or not. In Canada, we have legislation. If you bring more than $10,000 into the country or you take more than $10,000 Canadian out of the country, you have to report that to authorities. So of those $10 million, if anyone is moving more than $10,000 of that from the United States to Canada, then they have a legal obligation to report that. My guess is that more than $10,000 at some point probably crossed the border, at which point Canadian authorities would have the legal authority to investigate what exactly is happening here and to seize the money until the source of the money has been clarified, because we also want to make sure that the sources of the, uh, those sources of money are, for instance, legitimate. The other day in an editorial, Mark Carney the former governor of both the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England, and some uh, see him as a, you know, prime minister-in-waiting. He said we should follow the money. So have we followed the money? It's nice that Mr. Carney is calling that somebody for somebody to investigate these sources of money, but he might actually want to look at the way our institutions are resourced and the way capacities that our institutions have, as well as their legislative framework. And he would understand that there's, I'm not confident that in Canada, we either have the will or the ability to do this. What conclusions have you drawn about the money keeping this thing going? Um, that we've been pretty ignorant about the challenges that Canada is facing in the 21st century to our democratic institutions, and that this needs to be a wake-up call, that we need to posture ourselves in a more robust fashion, um, and uh, that uh, neither the legislative frameworks nor the way we have resourced our agencies and the expectations that we have our agencies uh, are any longer um, up to par. Um, and so I think we need to do a wholesale review of our intelligence architecture in this country. The United Kingdom has done this in the last uh, five years. Um, Australia has done this in the last five years. The United States did it after 9-11. Uh, we're still sitting more or less on the same configuration of institutions uh, that we've always had. And I think what we can learn here is that these institutions are not performing for Canadians, they're not performing for the government, and they're not performing for the purpose of defending our democratic institutions in the way that we would expect them to. Christian Luprecht, thank you so much for that. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That was Christian Luprecht of the Royal Military College. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, outstanding volunteerism in the time of COVID. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP. Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. 
with most everything else, the pandemic has curtailed volunteering. Still, philanthropist Salah Bashir found ways to continue raising the funds for St. Joseph's Health Center and its new dialysis center. He is well known in the entertainment industry and is a long-standing supporter of the arts and gay rights activist. He's just been honored with a June Callwood Outstanding Volunteer Award. This particular award, and you've had quite a few, is is for raising money for St. Joseph's Healthcare Foundation. Tell me about that. Well, I I was a dialysis patient at St. Joe's. I live in the West End, not very far from St. Joe's. And so um, when I first got there, being a personality that usually looks described by some people as larger than life, but I don't know what that means. But I just wanted to have new things. How come they didn't have TV sets? How come they didn't have this? How come I drove by St. Joe's at night and there were, you know, no lights on the hospital. It was dark. And so I asked um, their president um, of the foundation to come and see me at the Dallas clinic. And he said, we need to do this and this and this. And she said, Budgets are a problem. I said, well, I can ask friends. And we began with the non-gala gala to get TV sets and basically said, you don't need to put on a new outfit, get your hair done, get a sitter, you know, valet park to get a bad meal to send me the money and get a full tax receipt. And it was a huge success. So went from there. Mm-hmm. How much money did you raise? Back then, I think it was about 250 grand. I have to say, uh, my family is also involved with St. Joe's. Uh, tell me about being a dialysis patient. Um, how long did that go on for? And uh, tell me about it. Dialysis patient for seven years, and um, I, so we moved into home dialysis because I still wanted to work. And so we had a nurse. We were when I needed blood work, I would go to the clinic, and we would have a nurse come home. My husband. Um, was trained to become my nurse, and we did dialysis at home. And uh, it was, um, again, the service and the health that we received. Was, I don't want to use the word incredible so many times, but it was incredible and on top of everything, you know, from diet to exercise to everything you needed. And they, they prepped me for uh, a transplant earlier, but I wasn't kind of ready for it. I didn't want to accept a kidney from my friends and family. I'd, didn't want to put them in, and I had quite a few friends offer them and family offered. But so uh, when I was ready, we got a transplant. I, I got one at Toronto General. But again, the service, I mean, just working with them and that team. Uh, and just, you know, the interconnectivity between one hospital and another, it's like no one's good to be, and everybody, it's what you need. That's how you prepare. Yeah. When did you get your transplant? July 17th, two and a half years ago. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. You've raised money for other causes as well. Tell me a bit about that. I've raised money for several different causes, from the Art Gallery of Ontario to the 519 Community Centre, which is the Gay and Lesbian Community Centre on Church Street. It serves the community. It serves over 200,000 people a year, and especially not during the pandemic, we've helped a lot with um, meals and you know, uh, mental health and, and all, like what a community center should be doing and response to people. What motivates you to be a volunteer? 
if you can do it, you have to do it. You should do it. And uh, I've always tried to do it. I've um, been lucky enough to, in every single way, I think my family, my parents and my grandparents and everybody in the family, if you can lend a hand or if you see, see someone needing a hand, but it was an automatic thing. You try and do what you can. Anything else you want to leave us with? Always tell people where the money goes and how their money is making a difference. And, you know, it's not a, about a big event kind of thing, but every little, you know, I started boycotting grapes when I was 15 in front of Dominion and Rexdale. And I got to meet the head of the United Farm Workers, Cesar Chavez. And he gave me something for fundraising for my whole life that inspired me. I only raised $150 and dad gave me $50. And I said to him, I only raised $150. And he spent like 10 minutes telling me how that $150 would go to help two families for two weeks. And it was like, whoa. So any little, little bit helps and don't get discouraged. We'll get through this. Congratulations. Uh, great talking to you. Thank you. Great talking to you. That was philanthropist Salah Bashir. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.